You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake here with Tony Greer, editor of the Morning Navigator newsletter. Hi, Tony. Maggie, what's happening today? Finally, finally a new month, which I think a lot of people are excited about. We actually have two big stories we're tracking, though. One of them is oil, of course, oil prices higher, oil giant Exxon, one of the biggest winners of the day after the company reported better than expected earnings on the back of those soaring crude prices. And India has edged closer to embracing digital assets and cryptocurrencies. Our man on the ground in Mumbai, Nupan Kolra, has more on this very important development. Let's have a listen. Hey, Maggie. Today is being touted as a watershed moment in India's journey in digital asset landscape, owing to key developments on the policy front. The Indian government has proposed a flat 30% tax applicable to transfer of virtual digital asset. This translates to less ambiguity towards the path forward in terms of regulation. Fears of an outright ban had sprung up during the winter session of parliament, which can now be marked down owing to the taxable stature. Another important element worth a highlight is that the proposal is for virtual digital assets and not just cryptocurrencies, which expands the cloud to include DeFi's and non-fungible tokens. From an investor standpoint, these assets are still not at level playing field owing to much favorable tax rates in traditional asset classes. Reserve Bank of India, the central bank for our country, will also be launching central-backed digital currency. To summarize, it is a positive step forward in this whole journey and India has embraced the revolution. Back to you, Maggie. So very interesting development, a lot going on there. And of course, this is just happening. So we're going to be following it very closely. And uh, as Nibban mentioned and alluded to, uh, issues and a positive development on the regulatory front, but a lot of tax issues involved. I know people have a lot of questions about that already. So for more information and to follow the latest coming out of India, head over to www.realvision.com backslash crypto, uh, and we'll be all over it in the coming days. Now, Tony, back over here, oil very much continues to be the story. In fact, you know, I hear an awful lot of people looking at energy as the place to be in this volatile market. Exxon stock, I, th I don't know where it ended up, but something like 6.5% up for most of the day, 80% if you go back one year from now. What do you make of the action here? Uh, that's a five sigma move in Exxon Mobil that breaks, um, you know, a long-standing monthly trend line. It includes Exxon galloping beyond the 200-month moving average. Um, you know, if you drill down into the numbers, you know, the biggest profit since 2014 with, um, you know, 205 versus dollar 93 estimates. They had their downstream petroleum product sales are up 12% year over year. Oil and gas production all beat estimates. They announced a $10 billion share repurchase. Last year, they returned $15 billion to shareholders. They're going to achieve their carbon neutral plans ahead of schedule. I mean, this sounds like a fossil fuel bonanza going on in Exxon, and I think we just uh, ignited another leg to the breakout. 
So uh, j just so we know, I know you, you know, you've been on here, you've been bullish oil, you know, natural resources for a, for a while. Everyone else sort of catching up now. Have you been in or, or do you like the equities in the oil majors? We'll get into some of the, uh, you know, other commodity markets in a moment. But do you, or is that something that you're trading in or that, you, that you're recommending for clients? Yeah, I've been in oil and gas stocks, you know, an overlap trade from last year, and I see no reason to get shaken out of them. You know, if anything, Maggie, I feel like um, I just did a fresh reassessment of the oil market, you know, at $90 Brent, and I come up with a bullish assessment here. So, you know, we're going to get to a point where positioning becomes an issue. Uh, I don't even think we're there yet because when I weigh the bullish side of the oil factors that I come up with against the bearish side, the bearish side has got a lot of fighting to do. You know, there's a big tsunami of, of you know, bullish headlines, developments, you know, from OPEC, uh, you know, struggling to build up spare capacity with which they can manage the price of oil. You know, the IEA is looking for record physical demand beyond pre-COVID levels. I think it's really relevant that an Obama judge just literally nixed all the offshore drilling leases that the Biden administration approved last year. So as long as our energy policy revolves around shooting ourselves in the foot on a continual basis, I'm going to say that this uh, oil rally is going to be very much intact and the dips will continue to be steep in price and very short in duration until we get to a point where everyone's really long and then we'll have a tumble and we'll get back on our feet. But the, there are bullish developments under the hood in the, in the crude oil market everywhere I look. Yeah, so so let's, I wanna ask another question about some of the equities, but let's let's talk about that crude price for a moment. Everyone now saying $100 a barrel. Are we hearing that, that tossed around a lot? What are you looking at in terms of price action? And is that the, tar the next target you're looking at or is it something higher than that? Uh, man, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of Doomberg, the green chicken. And uh, I was listening to, you know, our our interview today, our second interview, and it makes me even more bullish from here. It, it really does. You know, it's one of those things where the price goes higher and you assess the situation and you say, I mean, $100 is nice. It's 10, 15 percent higher than here. But more importantly, uh, you know, the the developments, you know, from Europe to the U.S., are extremely bullish for gasoline and oil. So I don't really see $100 as any kind of a, you know, as a, anything but a psychological barrier. You know, maybe if it gets up to that price with some momentum, you let some out there to take profits in front of a great round number. But, you know, more, you know, structurally, it seems like we could be in for something even steeper than that. You know, we, we, we've got all of these bullish factors. The stars are aligning now, right? We've got geopolitical risk with the Russia-Ukraine story. We've got the Houthi rebels back droning everything in sight in the United Arab Emirates, likely to take some production offline and at least increase the idea that more of this could happen. You know, the inventories coming into this year um, for Cushing and across oil products are sort of at the bottom end of five-year averages, if not below it. So, you know, we're going to continue to crimp demand, cancel leases. We're going to continue to have, you know, uh, a huge number of drilled but uncompleted wells, which are the ones that we could go in and readily tap in the need that we in the in the instance that we needed some more oil supply. And, you know, all of this is going to take way too long to turn around for, you know, the, the pace that the market is picking up on the upside. So $100 is maybe a nice for a sort of uh, microcosm development target or something like mm. that. 
but it, it feels to me like we're going to go a lot higher. It really does. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I mean, this is a longer term situation where you're talking about uh, supply and there's been underinvestment for a long time. We have OPEC meeting tomorrow. Um, do you do you get a sense that we're actually getting the real deal on what's happening with supply? I mean, would they even admit it if they weren't able to meet supply? It seems like a lot of people think that's what's happening. Um, no, they wouldn't admit it. I think they would be loath to let it get out. You know, if anything, mm -hmm. they probably know that they're they've got a production shortfall on their hands and they know that that's probably bullish. So the best thing for them to do at this point is play dumb in as much as possible and, and let this continue. You know, the headline out of Saudi Arabia today uh, rhymes with the headline that they let out probably two or three times along this rally and always sort of in the beginning of a new quarter. They're going to raise their March prices for Asian clients, right? So that's something that we've seen them do the whole time, continuing to ratchet prices higher. This is why when Biden turns to them and says, hey, we need you guys to let out some more capacity, they say, um, yeah, I don't think so. And they make up as whatever excuse they want, right? They can source the, hey, you know, we've got a, a potential continual pandemic to deal with. We've got economic risk all over the place. We've got inflation risk. We're, you know, really hesitant to, to lay off the gas here, you know, figuratively speaking. And so I, I think that they're managing it brilliantly. I really do. Unfortunately for us, they're managing it brilliantly because we'll be looking at $5 gasoline at the pump, I, I would imagine, by the summertime, if not sooner. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and you know what that does, like immediate tax hike, in addition to all the other ones we're seeing. You know, Tony, there was a time, and, and for those who maybe haven't tracked OPEC all along, um, you know, it, it, the thought was that, you know, it, it's really up to them to determine the price, and they had the supply to put out there. Um, and they would always fine-tune it based on um, trying to find that sweet spot, right, Tony? If, if, if it was the price was too high, they were worried about killing off demand. Are we in a different situation now in this inflationary environment where that's not as much of a risk before as before? We are because we are uh, driving off the ESG cliff as quickly as possible, you know, and, and the ramifications of that are starting to manifest. Um, you know, Russia just said that they were going to be holding up ammonia exports, and that is definitely a sort of, uh, you know, political shot to the bow for, you know, anyone that needs to import ammonia or fertilizer. Right. So that that's sort of where the oil trade is coming into the, you know, turning running into the grain trade and higher oil prices for longer means higher grain prices for longer. The grain complex is seriously as recently, you know, woken up and, and traded right to its high soybeans are breaking out um, with the story in Brazil. And, you know, now we're getting to the food inflation point becoming very, very serious with an overlap of a potential European, you know, gas crisis getting very serious if they run into a period of this winter that is extremely below um, average temperatures. Mm -hmm. So if they get extended period of cold temperatures there, 
they've already got a natural gas supply issue and they've got Vladimir Putin holding, um, you know, the tap like this, deciding how much goes over there. And so that, you know, that that really paints a little bit of a bleak situation when you when you if I may reference again the, the Doomberg conversation that we just had. Mm. A lot of people are going to starve if this remains, you know, if, if these policies remain in place and the, the market price action remains in place. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up, Tony. I'm going to jump in for one second because we actually have a clip from that interview that I want to play. We have a lot of questions coming in across uh, a, a lot of the topics we just touched on, but I I want to play a little bit of that conversation around that you had with him around the supply of natural gas in Europe. Let's have a listen. Awesome, Tony. Let me be very clear: the hundred-day moving average of the price of natural gas in Europe (TTF) is well above thirty dollars per million BTU. $30 per million BTU natural gas for an economy is a catastrophe. It doesn't need to go back to the all-time highs. The fact that it is persistent at right. seven or eight times what it costs nat for natural gas in the U.S. is a total and complete calamity for the European industrial base. Does Europe want to make anything a decade from now? Does Europe want to be completely self-reliant you know, on um, imports? What does that mean for the strength of the euro in that scenario? What does that mean for deficits, um, you know, um, import-export deficits? This is yeah. a total and complete calamity. At $30 per million BTU natural gas, the European manufacturing sector is effectively acquiring a critical input into its economy at an oil per barrel, you know, dollars per barrel price of oil equivalent of what? $200 for oil? Um, and in the U.S., as we're talking, I'm looking at, you know, uh, NG1 pricing in at $4 per million BTU. You can't, you just, it just doesn't compute. At this, this, if energy is life and energy is seven and a half times more expensive in Europe, there's going to have to be a lot less life. Yeah. It just, yeah, you have really to, eventually, it, it has to, the, the, the circles have to be squared, as we would say. Um, so this is a catastrophe. It doesn't need to go back to the all-time highs. The spike is here. It's real. It's going to be pushed through. Tony, fan fantastic conversation and, and so worrying for anyone who's sitting in Europe and we, and we watch this happen. Uh, it, it, the spike is here. It's real. Oh, it's real, Maggie. You know, I tell you, you know, in, in addition, what, what was even better than, uh, than rewatching myself and Doomberg and, and getting, you know, uh, great bits like that is that I'm listening to the Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson podcast and, you know, I'm saying I'm, I'm listening to them go into an environmental and, and very much energy conversation. And I'm starting to get excited because, you know, Joe Rogan's got 40 million listeners, whereas Doomberg and I have who knows how many listeners. But mm. more importantly, when someone like Joe Rogan is interviewing Jordan Peterson, who is making quotes like this, I get very excited that the idea that we are in so, that the poor, at least, are in some kind of danger. Mm. Listen to this for a minute. That's the old saying, when the aristocracy gets a cold, the working class dies of pneumonia. It's okay, so fine, increase energy costs. Well, what happens? A bunch of poor, poor people fall off the map, like a bunch of them, hmm. right? And so the more you increase energy costs, the more that happens. And so if the price we have to pay to move towards sustainable environment is increased energy costs, and it really isn't because that's a policy decision, it doesn't have to be that way. That is absolutely 100% and 
and an inevitable consequence that we what we are doing is sacrificing the poor here. Yeah, so it's and really that, that, dire that's threading through so many conversations now that we have around inflation, around Fed policy. Um, you know, and I, I and I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Um, no, it's, it's important that uh, an audience as big as Joe Rogan is hearing things like that because that'll start to socialize the idea that, you know, this isn't exactly, you know, the most, mo it may be the most virtuous policy we can think of. It's definitely not the best way to transfer off of carbon. Yeah. Um, Tony, we got some questions coming in. Um, so let's try to get, th get through uh, a few of them. And I want to start with Christopher's. Uh, and he's asking from the exchange, how do you explain the continued backwardation in the oil futures curve? On the one hand, one would imagine higher rates to raise costs of production might flatten the curve. On the other, Cushing inventory is surprisingly low. What do you make of this? Yeah, it's all about the Cushing inventory being low. You know, don't don't look for interest rates going higher um, to to cause anybody or any industrial um, to make the decision to not buy gasoline. You know, that gasoline is the power that sustains every industry, and it is very much inelastic in price to the industrial company. It may be elastic in price to the consumer, but I'd argue that below $5 a gallon or so, you know, we're not really digging that hard into gas demand, you know, fuel demand here. So mm -hmm. I would I would tend to stay away from, you know, looking for interest rates to affect the oil price right now, especially when we're heading into a period of extremely low supply and, you know, record demand that that really for me is going to be the overlying driver of oil prices. And I think that the you know one of the few things standing in the way of much higher oil prices, given all the policy decision that has been very carefully lined up to cause higher oil prices. You know, I, th I think we're a long way from uh, those gears turning around, let's say. So right now, the gears are in motion to push us to much higher oil prices, even from last sale. I'm really pretty confident about that. Ross, on the exchange, I think we talked a little bit about, you know, some of the price um, action that you're looking at, which could, which could easily go uh, above 100. But Ross on the exchange asking this question, if inflation generally remains sticky, will this provide a higher floor in the oil price when it does come off its peak? Or is it all about the rate of change of inflation? Well, there's a little bit of un to unpack there. You know, I'm... I'm when I, when I when I look at sort of uh, when when I look at January's performance, let me just take a step back, Maggie, to answer this question. And I noticed yeah. that the only sectors that rallied in January was the energy, oil and gas sector, right? Yep. With the XLE up nineteen percent, and I think XOP was up eleven percent. Every other sector, pretty much in the in the S and P five hundred, was off in January, led by technology, led by big technology and the FANG stocks, which came off 10% as a group, you know, that's the sort of rotation that I'm looking for and I'm looking for it to continue, right? The, the energy traders have not been bucked off the, uh, you know, the bull run from any de-risking in the equity market. It's only creating a more bullish, as you can see, a more bullish scenario in the energy equities and to me, that's the story that is going to drive this year's natural resources trading. You know, and I feel I've been saying going into the year, as I've said this earlier, uh, going into January, and I'll say this going into February, since January just proved it, we are in a position now where the only stocks in the S&P that have got an edge here in the world of rising rates where the two-year yield leaps 30, 40 basis points a month, 
The only game in town is energy stocks. And it, yeah. might, be, it might be like that all year. We may have 12 consecutive months where tech is negative and energy is positive. Now, I know that that might be an outlier and a low probability, but at least I get odds and I'd put a bet down on that happening any day. I, I, I laugh because I feel like every time uh, we do questions, we're always going to get a question about Freeport McMoran. Free, I don't know why, Tony. I just, I guess I know they know you know it well, but uh, Achilles on the exchange is asking, do you life, like FCX at these levels? Looks like it's range bound between 35 and 46. Well, I've got to be a disciplined trader. Um, yeah, I do like I do like Freeport McMoran at these levels. Uh, I got bucked out of a trade on it recently, so I kind of have to keep my mouth shut a little bit. Um, you know, I bought that last breakout above 40. We got up to 46, and I just raised my stop to break even and had to pass out of it. But, you know, that's kind of the, the modus operandi for how I stay alive um, over the last 30 years um, since that strategy has served me properly. I'm kind of prowling around looking to get back in, but I'll be honest with you, copper seems to have a problem right now, and I don't know exactly what it is, but, you know, going into this whole, um, you know, carbon emissions and pivot to electronic vehicles, copper should be performing a lot better than it is right now, especially the fact that it's sitting on all-time highs with mm -hmm. record low inventories. So you would think that over time, the copper price would start trending. And then you look over at the copper chart and see that it's been consolidating for over a year now and really has not made any material upside advance. So if copper is going to remain range bound during this um, you know, pivot to ESG and carbon neutral and electronic, platform, uh, electronic carbs, um, I'm a little bit nervous that we might not get the performance at a Freeport that I was hoping for. Mm -hmm. And you know, the more and more I sort of get bucked off the same trade, the more I'm likely to move my money to something that's getting treated a little bit better. And, and that to me so far would be something in the energy sector or maybe where I can buy something that's so extraordinarily cheap right now, like cannabis stocks. Um, I'd rather rotate into something like that, if that's fair to say. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that, Tony, because cannabis has come. I, I know I know it's a sector you follow closely. We've talked about in the past. I've heard it coming up. Uh, again and again, even even in a conversation where people feel reluctant to step in aggressively and buy or bargain hunt, which you can tell me your thoughts on that, because I, I we've been hearing from a lot of people coming on our air that, you know, last Monday may have been a bottom, but they're not convinced it was the bottom. And they're still they're still a little worried. But I hear people talking about cannabis, a couple different people, um, both on our air and other platforms. What what's happening there? Do you think it's just that they were beaten down so much? Or is there a change in fundamentals we need to know about? Well, if a year ago, Maggie, if you remember, um, cannabis was breaking out to new highs. Um, MSOS was literally chugging toward, let me just put the chart up here, chugging north of 55. And we were all um, guilty probably of high-fiving about a new hashtag we created called the MSO gang because all of a sudden the US multi-state operators were just bid only for weeks at a time. And everybody that's in the sector is like looking at each other saying, this is it, right? This has got to mean this is it. <laughs> and you know, we thought they were never gonna come back. And so what you have to remember that whenever you're high-fiving um, with one hand, you have to be making sales with the other hand. And so now we know we can turn that story on its head. Back then, we were looking ahead to the Safe Banking Act being passed. 
obviously the federal government has dragged its feet for over a year on that. And here we are with the MSOS ETF halved from where we were in February. Now, what's attractive to me is sentiment is easily as negative now as it was positive a year ago. Um, you know, the valuation is even cheaper. You've got the chance to, um, you know, buy some of the best growth potential stocks and cheapest value stocks in the market all in the same sector. So that that's definitely something where I am going to begin taking swings again from the long side, especially down here at the IPO MSO price of that ETF, mm -hmm. where over history, sometimes that level continues to hold. And now all of a sudden, we've got some large magnitude moves off the bottom. And I would imagine that as you can see, after a year of uh, price action like this, nobody's left long these things. So <laughs> you have a lot of opportunity to really, uh, you know, try to carry the torch from the long side. But I think that once we get safe banking passed, what will happen is the market will get thick with institutional players. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and therefore, when the institutional player wants to be in a sector, you know, they see that's, you know, the big plain vanilla who's got a 20 year time frame sees that sector off 20 percent and they're an automatic buyer and yeah. that sector off another 10 or 20 percent from there. And they're an automatic buyer again for another time frame. And so, yeah. you know, there's a lot of that that thickens up the bid in the cannabis market in that sector that really just was not there for all of last year. It was mm -hmm. very much a game of hedge fund hot potato. And, you know, it got ugly into the tax loss selling in the end of the year. Yeah. And it looks like we may be having a rebirth of the sector here. But until safe banking passes and it becomes full, you know, full and fair game for every institution out there, we're going to have air pockets like this. And sometimes they last longer than we hope for. Yeah. Great, great rundown on so many fronts on that, Tony. Fantastic um, thoughts about institutional. I, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people are going to take that on board and they're thinking it. And it's always great for us that you bring that traded trading strategy in because, you know, people do get convicted and it is hard when you see those gains to be really disciplined about taking your profits when you're winning and also protecting yourself on the downside. So to totally appreciate that. What's been, um, we have, what's been great, Maggie, is fundamentally just really quick, you know, yeah. we've, we've interviewed about five or six cannabis CEOs and the common denominator, you know, they're frustrated with the stock price, but they are not letting the stock price kill them because yep. they're so busy building up operations. And it feels like it might be a case of, you know, you can pay me now or you can pay us more later. And yeah. so we'll see if that's the case. I just wanted to add that in. The CEOs no, are It is great. And this is, this is an area where you do catch up with a lot of them and interview a lot of them. So I encourage everyone to check that out because yep. um, you, you've been doing a fantastic job on that front. And absolutely, I mean, for years, institutional people that I've been talking to are just waiting for the banking rules to change. They are absolutely on the side sidelines, kind of ring fencing this and just waiting. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be a fun patch to watch. Um, we have a couple more really good questions. I want to try to get to them. Uh, we have uh, Roger asking, is there more downside in uranium? On the exchange, really, you know, uranium is really tough. I, I continue to uh, shy away from writing about uranium, although I am invested in the Sprott Physical Trust and URA, the uranium ETF um, in small enough. These are kind of investment positions that are rare for me. Um, they're, they're positions that aren't big enough to, to hurt my portfolio in any way. But I'm there representationally because for me, that is a ESG failure trade where we're kind of going to kind of have to pivot toward nuclear energy, which is, you know, everything about it. We've been sort of sold the wrong story over the years. 
And, uh, you know, now that we can effectively clean up nuclear waste without too much of a problem, it becomes a lot more viable of an option. But the problem that I have with is it is that I don't have the price transparency in the uranium markets that I have in the gold market and the crude oil market and the other commodities that I'm really comfortable with. So unless yeah. I can overlay that kind of science into that sector, it's really hard for me to speak with a lot of confidence about it. Because as you know, the things that give me confidence are the things that, I, you know, that I've been observing for years in the markets. So now I'm kind of letting the uranium bulls have their day. Guys like Harris Kupperman, um, you know, Doomberg is exceedingly bullish in uranium. And it, it, for me, it's like the most the biggest disappointment is that, you know, we've got that that big unrest situation in Kazakhstan. And mm -hmm. you look over and the uranium price really didn't move. And mm -hmm. so if, if the world isn't afraid of uh, Kazakhstan, you know, failing to deliver uranium or, or for whatever um, you know, trauma the country is going through, then clearly it's not a big enough issue to worry about then, right? So maybe that's keeping prices in line. Uh, but I think over time, I, I think it's going to take a, a sort of political headline and an admission that nuclear is necessary to really light that fuse, if that's fair to say. Mm -hmm. um, for now, I think it's a matter of jockeying and probably some hedge fund hot potato um, with positioning. But fundamentally, the market is definitely intact, and the Sprout ETF is healthy, growing, and expanding its uranium assets. So I, I think this is a story that you have to continue to stay on. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. Gosh, we have so many great questions today. We're, we're, I'm going to save some of them for next time, Tony, but I want to squeeze one more in from Jim. And we touched on this in the beginning. Um, Jim on the exchange is asking, are energy stocks catching up to oil and that gas stocks? Some of them, uh, he points out a few that were flat today, but equities rallied possibly along with XOM. He's talking about BZ, CL, and NG. I don't know if you're familiar with any of them, but I, I, you know, I guess he's asking, is there, is there, you know, is there going to be sort of a lagging rally in some of those um, energy stocks as we see those those uh, natural resource prices continue to rocket higher? Well, you know, I, I take a snapshot of the S&P at the end of every year, Maggie, and, and at the end of last year, technology was 27.6% of the S&P and energy is 2.3%. So with energy being um, recurringly now for several years, the smallest percentage of the S&P that it's been it sure seems like this is the time that that is all going to change. You know, it sure seems like when we're heading into a changing rate regime, when we've got actual commodity inflation, which is underpinned by an unbelievably policy-driven bull story and mm -hmm. bull narrative in oil, you have to think that this is going to be the time that oil stocks are going to start to expand. And then you go ahead and get a report like we got out of Exxon today, which was like, you know, the immaculate earnings price per share report, you know, it couldn't have been any better across any matrix, I don't think. And, you know, for me, it, it may continue to take long to play out. Um, but but it feels like this is the one as in, you know, this is the year where the energy sector is going to be, you know, start growing, and maybe become a much bigger market cap sector of the S&P, while technology maybe finally takes a haircut. 
you know, and maybe at the end of this year, we have the uh, technology sector is at 20% of the S&P and the energy sector is at six or 7%. Yeah, yeah. Are you are you dabbling in tech at all? Well, I'm, I'm mentioning this because we have uh, Alphabet earnings out um, and it looks like they're to they've topped earnings expectations. Um, we've got to go through the details. And a lot of this is about what happens in the conference call too. So, but are you dabbling in tech at all, Tony? Or are you really just concentrated in energy? Yeah, you know, I, like, like I said to a, a, a client on a consultation call earlier, you know, I really spent the last year and a half being mostly long um, natural resources names for, you know, for the most part, pretty successfully. You know, we were going with the trade very much there. And I had very little else on the books. Mm. Now, coming right into January, I came into the start of the year with a retail short on um, just to sort of hedge myself. And then I added a uh, social, uh, excuse me, I added a Twitter short and a triple Q short pretty opportunistically and already took some of those off. But more importantly, um, I, I definitely see this as being a year where you need to be short some sectors of the market. Otherwise, you know, the drawdowns in technology are just going to bleed out your energy gains on certain days yeah. when it, when the indices are just too beat up for energy stocks to rally that day. You know, so I'm trying to be in those trades so that I can have big days on those days, too. And it's just so much harder to trade tech from the short side. You know, I'm, I'm a decent bull market trader and in bull markets, covering shorts is so much more difficult. And I feel like we're still in a bull market, so I'm being careful with it. But mm. you're going to see me take a lot more chances being short technology than I uh, this year than I did last year. So that uh, I'm, I'm very much open to that because I think this rotation is violent and real. Yeah, um, awesome stuff. And that, uh, hopefully that answers um, a couple different people were asking questions about that as well. And for some of the questions on here, we went over too. So if you join late, go back and rewatch it because we covered uranium and copper and some of those other issues. Um, Tony, fantastic amount of fantastic advice and information. Thank you so much as always. Thank you for putting that together, Maggie. That was great. Now, Ash is going to be here tomorrow with Darius Dale. They can dive into some of these issues as well. And as always, the conversation continues on the exchange. Thanks for posting so many great questions there. We always look there for them. Um, so keep doing it. And in the meantime, take care and good luck out there. Peace, gang. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.